You are now listening to The Big Data Beard, an O'Reilly Media partner and community sponsor of Stratadata and AI conferences around the world. Be sure to stay tuned to the end of our show for a special message from our team. And now your host. We're back with another episode of the Big Data Beard podcast, where we explore the trends, technology, and talented people making big data a big deal. Just wanted to make it clear, I do not have a beard, and my name is uh, Aaron Banks. And we have on the uh, podcast with us today, uh, Brett Roberts. Hey, how's it going? Good, and you? Doing great. Awesome. And then Rob Howe. How's it going? Good. How's everything with you? Perfect. And gray rainy skies in Seattle. That's just what you asked for. It doesn't get any better than that. And our uh, guest on the show is Carrie James, who's the VP Alliances at Blue Talon. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Aaron. How are you today? Good. Uh, I hope everyone's getting ready for uh, Thanksgiving and having a lovely, lovely um, holiday. If I forgot to mention it, even though this will be posted after the holiday. Hopefully everyone's back at the gym hanging out, <laughs> losing some of that weight. I know I'll need to. Uh, but before we start uh, that process, I just wanted to bring up a couple of news topics that have caught my eye recently. One of them, um, as I start working on my own job as part of uh, doing some messaging for AI and machine learning and deep learning, and a lot of uh, kind of the concepts or the concerns over privacy associated with it. So there was a really great video that I saw. And it was just talking about the fact of, um, again, kind of like the concept of whether or not we understand the implications of privacy and what AI and how it's being used and the impact it will have on our lives in general. And I was just was curious about everyone's kind of thought on that, about where they kind of feel if they're kind of concerned about the AI and privacy and all of those different aspects, or if they're like totally fine with it and they, and they think that the benefit outweighs the risk. So I think there's a couple of things there, Aaron. Um, so... The, the first one is is with AI, right? A lot of the artificial intelligence and deep learning functions were built um, to generate information. And so it's not so much about the, they weren't designed for privacy, right? So now we're actually trying to get deep learning and understand context um, around the customer and the relationship with that customer with the data. So I think that's where the, the big piece is going to come into play is do we have context around how we're actually trying to protect the privacy of the information? So an algorithm that's designed to do population health care um, is, is one thing versus a that same deep learning algorithm now aimed at a specific individual such as myself for personalized care. You now have a different level of privacy, right, and anonymity um, in that to be taken care of, although the algorithms are very similar. So I think that's the big piece we got to come down to is understanding the context of the information, understanding the context of the use, and then how do we protect the privacy inside of that context? So do you think that's actually going to happen, though? Do you think that privacy is going to be, you know, taken care of after the fact? Because I feel like security has always been an afterthought, and I still have this concern that it's going to continue to be an afterthought even after we start implementing AI. Well, agreed, right? So let's you know, another topic I think we'll talk about later, um, the European Union, right, and their Data Protection Act acts and their new one that they're putting out, GDPR, um, it's around that event, right? It's around trying to put data um, security in the forefront. Analytics is, you know, where it's near and dear to you and my heart. You know, analytics the last five years, um, you know, up to really the last year, analytics was about free reign to the information, right? Go look at the data. And if you wanted to do 
protection of data, what you did is you built siloed little pods of information, only gave one or two people access to that data. So you were using, you know, basically almost personal security measures. However, we still had access to all the data that was inside of there. So, you know, if I was going to be nefarious, I was going to be nefarious and I had access to all the information. So that's one of the things we're looking at now in the analytics space is, is how do you actually unlock analytics while protecting the consumer? And so there are more and more companies. Um, we're seeing it in financial services um, drastically, healthcare, another big one. We're obviously seeing it in uh, Europe, right? But we're also seeing it in Asia Pacific. Um, so what that tells me is it's going global. It's being led by certain places. But at the moment, security still is the afterthought, right? But more and more companies are shifting now to how do I protect my data while still allowing, you know, these machine learning algorithms, even data scientists, um, business reports. How do I make sure that, you know, Carrie doesn't get access to social security numbers because he's in our, he's a CSR and not a financial services rep? So the stuff that's been well, I think there. there's a, a cousin to that topic, right? So there's a security to the data and access to the data, but there's also ethics and use of the data. So I might have rights to it or might be the right person to access that content, but there's got to be a, a governance around how I use it. Like, you know, the old don't be creepy with data, right? So, you know, it's, and that's a, that's a, it's a big topic for me because there's, there's legal ramifications to how I use the content, even if it is secure. And I'm the only one that has access to it. Correct. Yeah, I also, uh, Rob, you make a, a great point. Where where is that ethical thing on the part of the the organization versus a regulatory thing? And I think how do we inspire you know, more ethical thought and ethical habits versus using regulations to define everything across the board? Because when you overregulate, you stifle innovation, you stifle the ability to to progress to a point. So how do we, you know, use ethics as a way of ensuring privacy versus regulations? Yeah, so that's interesting. So that brings me up to the second topic that I thought was a really great article. And it was titled How to Collect Worker Data Without Creeping Out Your Employees. And I love this because um, recently the company they work for had a survey. And sometimes I get nervous about answering those. They say that they're anonymous, but I was a question whether or not they are anonymous. And I know as we're in this new realm of filling out health surveys and, you know, asking questions about how often I drink or smoke or how often I work out. And they say that it's for your benefit, but I just wonder what they're doing with the data after the fact. And, you know, are they using it against me and therefore increasing, you know, premiums? We know that they increase prices for items based on the device that you're logging into or how long you've stood in front of a device. You know, like numbers and prices can change depending on how much time you spend with it. So, you know, does anyone have any thoughts about, you know, it's worker data, your company grabbing data about you and what they're using and tracking all of your information? Like, again, like how often you're on the internet or surfing the web versus doing work. Like, do you guys think about that when you're working and filling out these forms and these health kind of things? I think that topic came up pretty clear uh, recently. It wasn't necessarily an employee thing, but the whole Twitter verification fiasco pit, right? Like, you know, we're going to start looking at your behavior outside of Twitter. What are you doing in your offline life that might affect you having a little verification tick mark, right? So now if I'm an employer, am I looking at my employees' activities outside of the job that I might affect my opinion of them or what kind of services I give them or allow them to do? That's pretty frightening. Yeah, agreed, right? And so to that point, to inside and outside the organizations, right? So if you guys remember this, um, the little 
rideshare service uh, last year posted an ad, right? Hey, we know where you've been. And all of a sudden, that, that use of privacy, right? The context, the, back to that ethical comment of, you know, they're gathering data to understand, you know, the drivers, the patterns, et cetera. But now are you using that outside the context we've agreed for it to be used in? And now privacy comes into play, right? So that's, I, I think, is the conversation there. And it, like most things in human nature, it's going to come down to is, is there a benefit, you know, for me as the individual um, with my company doing this and how, how are they using that information and are they using it in the context of the agreement, right? That's going to be huge, as, as Rob said earlier, right? What's the ethical use of that information? That ethical use of the data in context of why it was being captured is that's going to be one of the big things paramount to as much as am I authorized to see it? Am I authorized to use it for this context? Yeah, I completely agree. And have a, an example of an organization I, I used to work for where they realized how valuable the data was in auditing expenses. And they started scoping out all these really interesting ideas on how can we ensure that everyone's playing by the rules with expenses. But they got to the point where they had to take a step back and say, is this ethical? Is this two big brothers that too creepy? Are we going too far into our employees' lives and, and what they do to try and limit a, a few potentially bad apples, right? So they actually took a step back and, and did that. So I think ethics really does play a, a huge role in how do we ensure we're not getting to uh, creepy factor 100. Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen it before and I was part of some of those conversations where they were all ready to go into you know implementing this and then, hey, how is this going to impact our employer or employees perception of us as an organization. So I think that's another big thing as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, it was really, I don't know. I just find it fascinating. And I hope that companies are thinking about that, right. As they collect all this data and that they're protecting it correctly, which again leads to this like third topic, which uh, Carrie, you had brought up earlier is, is the, you know, GDPR, right. So the general data protection regulation, which is happening in the EU, uh, we have a couple of years to get through it, but it's obviously a discussion that's come up a lot recently um, in my world, right? When we talk about security and we talk about data and get in their hands. And and I just, we were doing a um, panel about this. Uh, I was doing, um, I don't know, a, a work event and I was on a panel. And, you know, it was interesting because they were bringing up, one of the people on the panel were just saying that regulation is really great. And then I just feel like, well, regulation it has its good things and its bad things, but the point is regulation. If, if a company is going to get fined because my data gets stolen, the fact is I'm the one that really has the biggest impact and I'm the one that gets hurt in the long run. And does regulation, is it going to eventually stop that? Are people going to really deal with it? Like they deal with all risk. And they say, well, it's, it's worth, you know, paying that fine versus doing all that protection because I just keep questioning whether or not GDPR is actually possible. Are we going to be able to, you know, delete every single amount of data about me that a company has so that I feel safe along those lines. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, if you, so the right to be forgotten is a useful piece, right? But to your, to the, what we've been talking about, how do we use the information in the context of it? If everyone elects to be forgotten, right? And the data has been anonymized to a point that you can no longer, you know, understand who's in, who's in the group. Or there's no data there to be utilized, right? So then how do you manage that relationship? So there is that that balance. I know 
Um, you know, the right to be forgotten is probably the easiest part of the GDPR to be taken care of, um, you know, to actually clean out the information from the users. But how do you keep transactional information about a person, but have no, you know, information about who the individual is? So there's, there's still pieces of that puzzle. The other big portion of that is going to be is how, you know, how do we actually take and do some of the anonymization pieces? I know one of the regulations in, in one of the countries um, related to GDPR is the fact that if there are less than 20 transactions in a postal code, then that postal code must be thrown away because it's considered to be, you know, too small. You cannot anonymize 20 individuals um, or 20 transactions, right? So that's going to be, that's a big piece of it too. It's not only um, you know, the privacy of the information, but it really does get down to privacy. Can you, you know, can you reverse engineer who the, the person is? And so that's going to be a big portion of that. The GDPR is that piece is protecting the privacy of the individual, not just securing the data. Yes, there's going to be masking, there's going to be filtering, but it's going to be that, how do I understand the use of this information? And in one transaction, I can use a postal code that has 20 events in it. And the other transaction, I cannot because it now breaks that privacy barrier. So I know I, well, I just kind of also find it interesting because I keep thinking like, it's, it has to be an iteration, right? They're going to have to play with it. They're going to have to see if it works and then recome, you know, like almost come back to it and revamp it because there can't be a single answer for this. Like there can't be a single way of solving this problem because it's a large problem that again, I feel like once again, we're trying to solve a problem um, a security aspect of a problem after the fact that we've already implemented all of these capabilities within our business. And now we have to kind of almost try to reinvent the wheel. And I don't know if, I mean, only time will tell whether or not this regulation really protects the people and what it protects them from. Cause there's always that debate. I always find it interesting of, I don't know, sometimes as much as I try to be pretty protective and quiet and <laughs> believe it or not, and kind of stay off, um, you know, characteristics about me, there's also the point of, well, maybe if we just shared everything, then there wouldn't really be anything to steal or wouldn't be anything to like worry about. They're just leave it all open and then just see what happens after the fact and put all of us on equal playing field. Um, I don't know how I feel about it. I just, I just, I question it. And I think, you know, like I said, only time will tell, but I think it's a, it's an interesting tactic. Yeah. And there's, and there is the different pieces there, right? In the, the levels of information. And you know, we were doing a project about three years ago with one of the people in our team was a millennial um, for a retail or, you know, an e-commerce retail. And they looked at the person across the table because the person was talking about the privacy and pieces. And he says, if you don't already know this about me, then why do I want to do business with you? Right. I'm, I'm not a millennial, <laughs> you know. Oh, I think you are. <laughs> I'm not right, but for me, I, I don't want that. And then, but it comes down again, or the context, of the data. Maybe my retail transactions, I'm okay with that, right? But my personal health information, I don't want, you know, out in the marketplace. So that's going to be the piece too. I think right now, and to your point, right, GDPR is kind of a blanket. But you know, where do we look at? Is there going to? You already start. You already have it in the United States, right? We have HIPAA. We have, you know, PII, we have PCI, personal credit, you know, type stuff. We have different regulations around specific types of information. So that's going to be the the big piece. Again, you know, I keep harping on it, coming back to it, but is the context of the information, the context of the relationship with the data, and then how, you know, what was what was I intending the company to do with that information when they collected it? Yeah. So speaking as a uh, 
a millennial or maybe, <laughs> maybe on the line of the millennial. I don't actually know, but I'm okay with certain parts of, of my life being open. I have nothing really to hide. And for the audience out there, don't Google me. Uh, you won't have, you won't find anything great, but uh, I, I'm always reminded of the, if you give a mouse a cookie type of analogy, right? Uh, how how far does it go to the point where there are certain things that I don't want out in the open? So I think there there's a certain amount that needs to be you know, regulated, but with a blanket regulation like this, I also look at the other side of the of, of the story where if you go all in, how easy is it to recalibrate to get to that sweet spot where you're protecting but also allowing companies to to progress? And I don't know if a, a blanket regulation does that. And I don't know how hard it is to change that regulation versus trying to do enact some maybe lighter type of things to to get to where that sweet spot is. Which is interesting to that point of like, all right, well, the millennials versus not, right? Do we is the expectation is these rules, these regulations are be create are created by, you know, old stodgy people or, you know, down the road, um, it'll start, you know, being not as important or not necessary. It'll be really interesting to see where it goes. Cause I do agree that the expectation for others that have grown up in a digital environment with, you know, an iPhone in their hand, um, it's just a different expectation of what you're getting from your businesses, um, from your life, from your restaurants, you know, companies like that. So I think it'll be really uh, interesting to see where that goes. So um, on that note, Kara, I wanted to get some of your input. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and about Blue Talon and, and what you do. Sure. Um, so myself, as you guys guess, I'm not a millennial. I've been in, I've been in and around information for um, over 30 years, right? So a weird background. Um, started out as a, an EDP auditor for those of you who don't know, electronic data processing auditor for CPA firms. Um, so I just, I loved the, the combination of information, um, how to protect the data, and then how to actually use the data in the business, right? So. Um, that translated to me into a long consulting career. And um, now I've spent the last seven years really focused on analytics, right? Before they were really the cool thing to, to be doing and the tools that we had, um, you know, really limited our the ability for us to do things unless you had, um, you know, one of the Cray supercomputers or you actually had a HPC com- computing grid, right? Those only existed in labs. Um, and to, you know, today we've changed that model. And then in that, that space of analytics, I really saw that, you know, the move towards self-service, the drive towards, um, you know, utilize, free utilization of information. And in there, you know, as a product manager for a, a suite in that environment, I noticed that the real key to unlocking this was, you know, the ability to allow people to have access to the data they're authorized to, but protect that's the sensitive and private data that we're talking about. And that's what Blue Talent does, right? So we do something called data access control. Uh, we work with authorization and we work with en- encrypto tools to, you know, do some protection of data. But encryption, um, you know, is really good for about 3 to 5% of your data in your databases, right? You get beyond that, the, the policy of, cre- you know, maintaining encryption and decryption and even the policies around how to drive it gets very much like the old views and the RDBMSs. And if anybody ever did a view-based security, you know, you may wind up, if you had 10 groups, you wound up with 10 views in the system and you're actually physically maintaining these views, even if they're materialized. 
And so that became a bottleneck. Well, that even didn't even exist in the Hadoop side of the house, right? So how did you do this? You either had to create new files. You basically, you know, perpetuated a, a bad practice of copying data, protecting data by creating individual silos of it. And that did not really allow for freedom of use, right? So now I can actually go in with Blue Talon and we do, we turn this into policies. So we're a policy enforcement model. So you write policy centralized and we have enforcement points based on the syntax of the different data platforms. So Hive, Impala, um, you know, Greenplum, Postgres, Oracle. Um, we're in the prog- process of developing one for Teradata. And what this allows people to do is actually do their definition of their policies once in a central space, but then enforcement of those policies and a consistent enforcement of those policies across the different data platforms. So now you actually do get the freedom from a data scientist, data analyst type role to be able to you know, access information that is relevant to me. I want to answer my question, but still protect the sensitive information. And as a company, as an organization, we talk about data mobility, right? Putting data on the right platform for its ability, you know, right fit, right cost, right analysis. Well, you didn't have that before, right? So now we actually allow that to happen as well. So the key to self-service, the key to data mobility is access control. And that's where we play. Now I can build like a data catalog. And with that data catalog, by policy, I can now restrict your you know, view into particular content at that layer, as opposed to having to give you access to each individual data piece. Correct. Yeah. So what are some of the projects that you guys have been working on at uh, Blue Town? Um, so we've worked on a couple of different projects um, very recently, um, two here in the United States with big financial institutions um, and one across actually in, in Europe um, with a financial institution as well. So as I said earlier, right, financial services are you know really being pushed heavily with the privacy and protection of information, but they are struggling to allow you know access to this information because they want to be, they have a, a, you know, a treasure trove of information about customers, transactions, events. Um, But they are really at kind of the forefront, even ahead of the regulations of how do we use this information, but protect, you know, company sensitive information or PII type data, PCI type data. Um, So I can think of it as a, you know, a a model and a, a protection model across my environment Versus having to go in and say, okay, we're going to remove credit card numbers from this field, or we're going to remove social security numbers. So we're going to create, you know, five different views of social security number for this table and in the 10 different tables that exist. So now I've got 50 different views across my data system. Um, Now I can go in and say, no, I want to write a policy that says when I see social security number, I, you know, for a CSR, we're going to mask all with the last four. For this organization, for management, they're they're completely um, you know denied access to social security number, and so again, then based on policy, based on who I am, what I'm doing, and the context of what I'm trying to do with the data, we can apply policies that control that sensitive and private information. Now, I so the last time I saw you, I think was I want to say Strata Data Conference, which was here in New York City, like it was this year. And when we were talking and we were um, discussing everything, you introduced me to, I think it was called like DCAP, I think it was, or DCAP. Can you give me like more detail yeah, about so that? Yeah, so DCAP. Yeah, so it's a Gartner, one of the Gartner quadrants, right? So data-centric access and protection. So what it's focusing on 
is kind of what we've been talking about today, right? So there's multiple layers of security, right? So there is security from a network perception. I want to prevent people from getting into my network. Well, you know, we the breaches we've seen recently, we all know people are in the network. So that's no longer, you know, valid. Then we had views where, um, where we're going to create all these views. We're going to maintain these different types of security places and you know, we're going to encrypt data. Well, great. You can encrypt certain pieces of information, um, but if it's a stolen credentials, right, then even once I have that, I can actually get to the encryption keys and I can now decrypt data. So, yep, stolen credentials, it's a bad thing, right? So what DCAP focuses on is how do you actually focus on protecting the information and not access, you know, when I say access to, not, you know, connection to, but how do you actually protect access to the data. So in the case of, you know, for our system, if we deny you access to the social security number, there is no encryption key to steal. If I mask the social except for the last four, it is actually an in-flight mask. So we are actually, you know, protecting that data. We allow you to know that A equals A, but we don't, you, we don't, you don't know what A is. So that's how we protect that information. So we're focused on protecting the use of the data. And that's where DCAP really focuses on is protection of the data at the point of use. So what does that mean? Like technically from like an analytics perspective, right? So how do I, you know, it's always that question or that debate about, well, and you know, the millennial brought that up even a little bit before, like there's, there's so much more that you want to know about me, but then I also, maybe in some cases I want to protect it. So how does a company find that, like almost that fine line between the data analytics and utilizing data so that there are no restrictions and making sure, you know, I I appreciate the concept of ethics, right? And that they're going to do the right thing, but you can't always guarantee that people are going to do that, right? So how, where is that fine line and how do you protect it? And how do you, how do you use those things, but certainly have that analytics perspective so I can still make sure that my business is growing, that I'm creating new products and services and I'm understanding what my consumers are looking for in those capabilities? Sure. So let's take an example of like an accounts system, right? So I'm a pick any company, retail, you know, telecommunications carrier, whatever. I'm going to have information about the customer. I'm going to have information about what they're doing. Inside that customer information, I also have do will have things like credit card number. I will have social security number um, or some type of identifier. I have street address, different types of information about that user. So I do want to know who you are, you know, who Kerry James is, what is he doing? Um, you know, how's he interacting with my organization? But what I don't want to do is, you know, have a breach of where I am allowing Kerry James's private information, credit card number, street address, social security number, again, back as examples to be, you know, out on the open marketplace. And so Again, the way to do that in the past was you created either, you know, multiple views of data that had this information protected. Um, You had different files of this information in the Hadoop ecosystem, different tables inside the systems. Um, And so if I forgot, you know, literally forgot to do this somewhere, then you run it, you run it, you, you, you have an exposure, right? You have a breach. So in the policy model, the way we do it with being a centralized policy definition with enforcement points, we actually intercept a query. And what I mean by that is if I type select star from accounts, um, you know, typically today you would get everything back. And how you protect that was what we were talking about, right? You'd have view and that view would say, oh, Carrie's trying to trying to select from accounts. 
but he gets a view that doesn't have social security number. It has it all the only the last four are visible. And then we go, okay, Aaron has another um, view of this data and she's a financial services rep. So she can see all of the social security number and Rob is a manager. He can't see anything. And so you had to create and maintain these views. And if you forgot, literally forgot to do that, then you, you had that exposure. So with the way we handle this, we do give that freedom to the data, right? So you, we provision people based on who they are and the attributes about the information and the context of how they're trying to um, utilize it. And then we would, by default, look at my policy and go, oh, Carrie is this. And we, we actually modify the query in flight. Um, so when we submit it to the database, you don't have to understand it, you know, Carrie get this mask because the policy does that. And we actually talk to the database and we bring back a, a, what's called a compliant result set. So in my case, it would come back with the social security number masked out except for the last four. In your case, it would come back with a social security number. And in Rob's case, it would come back with the, a column deny. Um, we would just put one X in it. Right. Because we'll say it's a numeric. Well, let's make it a numeric field. We actually put a zero in it. So your downstream processing wouldn't break because um, we don't want to remove Social Security number because there may be other things that are working on it. That, But he's actually denied access. And so when that result set comes back to him, it's got a zero. Right. In this case of a numeric field. And therefore, I never get to see the data. Right. But the actual predicates and what's happening in the database still happens. Right. So joins still work. Um, you know, knowing A still equals A still works, but it's when we when we surface, right? When we display that result set, that's when we protect the information. Yeah, I think there's a there's another positive aspect to this too, right? That we're then Carrie, you've kind of touched on the subject a little bit. So one of the positive outcomes of being able to have a policy based security approach over top of a single source or a single source of the truth is the fact that I don't have like the proliferation of junk copies of data, just multiple, multiple copies that are slightly reduced or pieces pulled out. And I'm just not filling my data center with, with junk, right? I've got a single source of the truth with a nice security policy layer tied on top. Is it, is that kind of how you see this or is this positive benefit? It is a positive benefit. So you absolutely have that. Right. Um, and you know, so I, you know, I worked for Dell EMC in the past, so I get it, you know, it's a storage perspective and, but we do want people storing the information in the, the most appropriate way and format. And yes, so what this does is it does remove that need, right? It, not completely, right? It will never remove the entire need to have, you know, copies of data for, for backup and protection and other pieces, but utilizing copies and redactions of information um, for security, that's absolutely where we see this, you know, moving away from moving towards this type of a, you know, whether it be a golden copy or a, a source of the truth, it's now I've got, you know, the same, I can have the same data. I'm no longer arguing about where did your data come from? Where did my data come from? Which, you know, we know never happens. Um, but then we also get to that point of when you move data from system A to system B, right? That we actually, the policies actually can follow it, right? There's a process and a procedure where you can actually move the data to the most appropriate storage medium, right? The most appropriate data platform and not have to worry about, okay, now that I move data from here to here, from A to B, right? B doesn't have the type of security information. So, oh, well, no, I can't do that, right? And so by taking the data, the data-centric access protection 
up a layer from the actual data application, right? Now we actually allow you to apply different information across the different platforms. So now you can make that decision based on, you know, business process, policy, cost, effectiveness versus security capabilities of the underlying siloed platforms. You talked about policy and, you know, importance of policy, but I think that being able to set that policy and define what that policy is, is is critical, right? So can you just talk a little bit about the importance of having a role for a chief data officer or a, a chief data governance officer and how that is critical to this whole security and, and policy-based approach? Uh, absolutely, right? I mean, because it's, it's people, process, and technology. So we're we're the technology side that allows it to be feasible. But if you do not have like a, a governance process and a governance board in place, then you don't know what types of information you want to protect. You won't have classifications of data. Therefore, you won't be able to actually go, okay, um, I know that Carrie is a CSR. I know that CSR should not have access to, you know, only the, they should only have access to the last four digits of the social security number. They should not have access to credit cards. You know, whatever those rules are have to be defined by a people in a governance board so that chief data, you know, chief data officer, chief governance officer is important in helping a company set their strategies, right? And then helping those companies put together the right policies or processes in their case, right, to actually make those real. And that way you know what you're trying to follow. So this goes back to your point, Aaron, of are we doing security after the fact or are we trying to now be more proactive? Those roles allow you to be more proactive in defining types of data and classifying it so you know what policies are needed versus um, trying to play, you know, catch up and going, okay, whoops, this is security. This is sensitive data. Therefore, we got to protect it. This is the other model moving forward saying, no, we're going to define our policies. We're going to define how we're going to manage and control sensitive data. Then when a data classification hits this, we already know what we're doing versus trying to understand, you know, after the fact. Yeah. And I get like uh, completely and utterly surprised when there's so many large companies and I mean, all companies could utilize a chief data officer, chief data governance officer, because if they're going to implement a data analytics project and they don't understand their data and they're not um, looking at the classification or how even customer names are written out or addresses or things along those, if they don't look at their data, like it has value, then I think that their outcomes are going to be less effective because they don't really, they haven't created like a symmetry across all of either the divisions or um, just even within the entire company. And it's just fascinating. I try to always ask companies that I, that I talk to whether or not they have a chief data officer. And a lot of times they, they don't. And they, a lot of them are incredibly successful with data analytics. And I keep thinking like, well, you know, I can only imagine how much more impact you would have if you had somebody that literally, you know, put rules and regulations in place about the data and how it's going to be used. So I hope, uh, you know, they keep talking about it being a new position and a lot of companies are taking it on. And I don't, I, I hope that people see the advantage or the benefit of it um, as a whole. Yeah. So I think the, the big thing there is we, we, I've been guilty of making this comment in my, in the past, right? We always say people don't do, you don't do governance for the sake of doing governance, which I think is true. Um, but you know, with that said, I think there are, I've seen more and more companies now starting whether they have a chief governance officer or not, they're putting in governance boards. And the one thing I've seen kind of flawed in the chief data officer is they bring them in and they only focus on 
um, you know, the use of the data. Why, how, what are we doing with this information? How do I get better marketing campaigns, et cetera? Um, again, versus looking at it from a holistic perspective, which is how are we using this data? What is the context and relationship of this data and my customer? And, you know, back to the very early point, are we ethically using this in the right manner? But if we define that up front, we can actually have that freedom of information, right? I can have my data scientists go look at marketing campaigns and different types of information without the fear um, that I'm going to expose, you know, sensitive data to the world. But it, that has to be a conscious decision. And then there needs to be, you know, GDPR kind of puts in place for this. There is the their, their compliance, you know, officers that have to come on board um, for the controllers. But we're seeing it here more in the U.S. as well, right? So the CISOs, the Chief Information and Security Officers, that role is also being big out there. What we've seen in the past, what I've seen in the past, is everybody treated them as silos, right? Different events and entities. And I think what we're starting to see, and I think we'll continue to see as the success will come into, is that you see these all as a interdiscipline, you know, to achieve the outcomes and not as individual events, that, you know, are to be overcome or to outflanked. Yeah. You know, I, I've seen that as well in a couple of customers where, where they are collecting the data first or bringing all the data into a single repository or they're beginning their data strategy. But then stage two or stage three is we need somebody to manage the entire end to end process and policy of the data, but it's an afterthought almost. And I think that we need to, and organizations need to make that part of their stage one in this data analytics journey, not a stage two or three to be the most successful and get the most out of it. No, I absolutely agree. Well, thank you so much, Carrie, for your time um, and for answering all these questions. We have just a couple more for you before uh, we let you leave. What year do you think that Skynet will go online? <laughs> um, well, if John Connor has anything to it, we'll, we'll stop them before they come online. So. <laughs> I think that's the uh, the second best answer I've heard to this. The other one was today, but the second best to that. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Um, so if you were going to buy me a book, Carrie, what would it be? Uh, if I were going to buy you a book, Miss Banks. Um, so I think there's a couple of them out there, but I think one is going to be important to this kind of conversation, right? There's two of them out there. One is digital disciplines and the other is platform revolution, right? So it's starting to think about this as we talked about as ecosystems and, you know, start to finishes, not as we had in the past, right? Um, starts and stops um, along the, the different mechanisms, but seeing this as a, an eventual flow. And again, not as, you know, things to be overcome, right? So governance, nobody does governance for governance sake. Agreed. But instead of just having a governance policy in place, you actually have the things that were to protect the information that needed to be there. And that comes in at the very beginning, right? Not at the end. Right. I like it. I like it. So um, what kind of uh, music are you listening to right now? Um, the music of your sweet voice. No. So um, my favorite... I'm still, I'm still, uh, you know, so you, you'll get my, I went to high school in the eighties, right? So I am still a metalhead. Um, so, and now they call that classic rock, but, um, you know, so still my favorites out there. I love it. So what's your favorite piece of useless technology right now? Um, my Macintosh computer. <laughs> and what is your biggest money pit? 
Um, my Your biggest, Macintosh computer. My, my biggest, <laughs> no, my biggest money, not money pit, right? But my biggest um, consumer of my funds now are my two teenage daughters and getting them prepared for college. So that's where most of my funds go to these days. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so are you going anywhere interesting soon? Um, other than here, no. So I'm actually finally having my knee fixed um, right after Thanksgiving. So oh, I'll man. be, I will be, um, interesting place for me will be from the couch to the, uh, to the refrigerator, but that's about it. Yeah. So on that note, I was just curious. So what is your 2017 uh, Delta status? Um, 2017, um, diamond. 2018, <laughs> 2018, I'm diamond. And Damn. 2019, I am 5,000 miles short of diamond. Really? You're already in 2019? Yes. That's crazy. No wonder your knee hurts. That's nuts. That's that nuts. That's nuts. That's I and my family agree with you. So the great news is, is the last four months that is um, drastically changed with the, the new <sighs> role with to Blue Talon. So. That's good. Although you're going to miss it, though, once you start having to sit and coach. <laughs> it's going to break your heart. Have you had the uh, the Porsche pick you up by the plane and take you to the lounge yet? I've not had a pick me up and take me to the lounge. I've had a pick me up and take me to the next gate because it was a couple of concourses away. So they did pick me up and um, drove me straight to the next plane. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's when you know you've made it, right? As, as far as a road warrior. Well, I guess I don't. I, I I live in Atlanta, and I very seldom ever change planes in Atlanta. But I was flying through Atlanta, going somewhere, and you know, it is, happens in the summer um, in the South, right? Weather delays, and I was really, really tight connection. I was like, you know, just I wasn't freaking right because I've done it before, and if I miss it, I just get the next one. But I, I came off walking up to the front. You know, the lady was standing there in the jetway. She's like, are you Mr. James? I'm like, yeah. She's like, come with me. So we actually went down the, you know, the little stairs where they take the bags, got into the Porsche, drove me to the next one, walked up, you know, and then they had the um, gate agent there and they, she's like, you know, verify my stuff and check me in. And I was on the plane. So, I mean, it was, you know, it was a very nice experience. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, yeah, I was in one of the first times they've ever done that in, uh, at New York at Kennedy. So that was pretty cool. It was, uh, I was excited. They took me to the lounge. Um, great experience. I highly recommend, but it means that you fly way, way, way too, much. too much. Yeah. Right. So, uh, last question, what show are you binging on right now? Uh, I'm actually not binging on any shows cause I was, it's been crazy cause I was able to catch up on my game of Thrones, which I, you know, I, is my favorite. You could ugh me all you want. I've to. never watched it. I mean, that's why I've now never you, watched now it. You've got to binge on it. There's a couple people's shows that people are trying to get me to binge on. And I'm just right now, I'm kind of refusing to take on a new one um, just because I'm, you know, trying to get a little bit of time back for me. I'm actually back into reading. Um, going, I'm going through my J.R.R. Tolkien for like the 87,000th time. Nice. Right. So it's, I, I haven't read it in like in a year and a half, two years. So I'm trying to go through that now and um, get back into doing a little more reading versus watching. But yeah, I would love to do that. Okay. So I got one question for you as well. Uh, we try to ask this on every uh, show. Who is your favorite bearded person from history or current day? But if you had to name a person with your favorite beard, who would that be? Oh, my favorite beard. That's an actual interesting question. Wow. Didn't J.R. Tolkien have one? <laughs> well, Tolkien had one, right? And so his mythical characters have beards, but they're mythical characters. So I'm trying to think of an actual 
you know, person. I like J.R. Tolkien did have one, but um, we can, we can do uh, mythical characters. Uh, Gandalf is always a uh, pretty popular one. Yeah, Gandalf's a really cool. One. I think for me, it's it's interesting. Is um, oh, and I my daughter is going to yell at me now because I'm actually drawing a blank. He is actually a one of the German um, philosophists. Ah. Uh, and I am just completely blanking, and she's going to be sitting in the other room listening to me, and then yell at me <laughs> after the it's podcast. It's all right. We'll put it in the notes because <laughs> everyone's going to be wondering who it was. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll I'll get that to you. I'll find out who it is, and he's actually pretty cool, right? Because you mean Nietzsche? Some of the the modern concepts, and it's not Freud, um, but some of the modern concepts of how we actually you know think and interact. Um, no, Nietzsche was, um, I think, Yugoslavian or Russian, but. Um, Oh goodness gracious! Give me, give me. You give stumped me a, him, Brett. Me, no, give me two seconds, and I will, and I will. It's Wilhelm Gump. No, I was yelling at my daughter around the corner, literally. So, that's um, funny. Wilhelm Gump. Okay, we'll have to uh, do some research on that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Carrie. Really appreciate all your time. Now, what is the best uh, way for us to find you on social media or other um, mediums? Um, you can always find me on Twitter at Kerry James 33. So it's C-A-R-E-Y-J-A-M-E-S, the number 33. You can also find me on LinkedIn. Um, again, Kerry James, um, you can find me there. So that's, that's pretty much it. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I wish you a, a happy holiday. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Big Data Beard podcast. As a thank you, we'd like to offer you a 20% discount to attend O'Reilly's Stratadata or AI conferences. Use the link in our show notes to register or promo code PCBEARD at checkout. And tune in to future episodes for a chance to win free passes to these amazing conferences. It would also be pretty cool if you reviewed us in your favorite podcast app. It really does help. Thanks for listening.